You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 13. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. It is a fairly warm winter day here in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta. I am joining you here in uh, my new firm, and I guess it's not quite new anymore, Stringham LLP. Um, It has been quite a while since I did my last episode. And I want to apologize for all of you faithful listeners who are wondering what the heck has happened to Mark's podcast. Well, I have, I have to be honest, um, it hasn't been for a lack of desire, but I have been channeling my energies into uh, some, some different social media strategies to help my practice a little bit grow and um, Facebook groups and things like that. And, and with content marketing, as some of you who do it know, it takes a lot of time in the beginning to get things rolling. And so I've created some Facebook groups and things like that. I've got one up to about 80,000 members. And in order to do that, it takes approximately two hours a day of your time being helpful, answering questions, doing all those things. And uh, so that has been where my time has gone. So I haven't um, I haven't intentionally neglected the podcast, but unfortunately it resulted that the podcast kind of got the back shelf, if you will, uh, for this last little while. But I'm excited to get back into it. I've got a lineup of, as I always say, a lineup of good people that I'm going to be interviewing. And the episode today is no different. I had a chance to catch up with Ron Lee Carey, who is a immigration lawyer in the beautiful city, our national capital, Ottawa. And I've brought Ron Lee back to share some insight and on the private sponsorship of refugees. And this is part two we did, and I'll, I'll jump into a few other explanations here in just a second when I get into the interview with Ron Lee. But um, I think you guys will really enjoy this. We had a chance to splice in some audio clips from a refugee family that uh, that she has been a part of uh, within the, the context of, of the private sponsorship of refugees. And she said she, um, she shared some amazing insight. And I know you guys will all enjoy that. Um, as it gets a little bit closer here to Christmas, I can't believe Christmas is just about around the corner. Um, I just wanted to uh, express my appreciation to all of you faithful listeners. Um, you know, this whole podcast and this whole idea of, of setting this up, it was all designed initially to find a way to give back. Um, I think if you listen to some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, you'll remember that um, one of the the reasons that started this whole thing was all of these Filipino uh, temporary foreign workers in Alberta who would con- uh, contact me for consultations. And um, by the time they got to me, there was nothing that I could do. But I realized that if there's a way I could reach out to them, uh, through blogs or podcasts or whatever, give them some just simple uh, information to guide them so that they could take more proactive steps 
then they could prevent themselves from either falling out of status or losing their opportunity to become a permanent resident of Canada. And so that was that the, you know, the, when there was, um, we had the four-year cap on work permits, LMIA-based work permits, and uh, also the uh, creation of express entry, which also created problems for people who would have otherwise qualified for permanent residence. So that's how this whole thing got started. And it has been quite the journey. Um, this year has not been as good as last year. So obviously we're only up to, this will be episode 13 this year. And so I've only been able to produce maybe about one a month on average. And uh, so I apologize for that. I'm hoping to get back in, in a much more concerted way going forward. So thanks for those of you who've been sticking it out with me. Um, if you would like to join me as a guest on this podcast, I totally welcome all of you um, uh, representatives out there. If you would like to join me on the podcast, just send me an email to mholthe, M-H-O-L-T-H-E at stringham.ca. That's S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M.ca. And uh, let me know. And because I would be absolutely delighted to have you join me on the podcast. Okay, without any further ado, let's jump to my interview with uh, Ottawa-based Canadian immigration lawyer, Ronalee Carey. Well, I am here with Ronalee Carey, who joins me in part two, we'll call it, of the private sponsorship of refugees in Canada. Ronalee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Great. So we had uh, Ronalee come and join us here in season one, episode 29. Now, it's been over a year. September the 1st, 2016 is when we first addressed this topic. Can you believe it's been that long? I've been a long time and we've had a number of refugees arrive since then. So lots to talk about today. Awesome. Fantastic. And that's exactly why I wanted Ronna Lee to come back and join us is because of the fact that uh, she's now has some experience with the full circle and the, you know, the, uh, the initial process of, of locating, <clears throat> excuse me, refugees to sponsor and then actually now having them come. And so we thought we would, it would be great to share that full experience. And I'm, I'm so appreciative uh, of Ron Lee taking some time to join us. All right. So Ron Lee, as I introduced here, we're going to be talking about the private sponsorship of refugees to Canada. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about this one particular family um, that you've, you've been assisting? Sure, Mark. So when I was on your podcast last year, I told you that the sponsorship group that I'm a part of had already had a Syrian family arrive, a mom and dad and two children. And we were waiting for an Iranian woman to, woman to arrive. So uh, she did arrive and the sponsorships of those two individuals have now finished. So we have done our year obligation to them. And in the meantime, just in August, we had another family arrive also Syrian, and this was mom and dad and six children, so quite a bit of a larger group. And and so where did they come from again? They were living in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, and they had fled there after leaving Syria. Awesome. Ron Lee was kind enough, uh, and for our listeners who are listening here, to visit the family and, and get a few little sound bites for us. And so they asked a few questions to the family, and uh, we were able to get those sound bites. And the first one that we're going to share here is a short little interview with the father. And um, Razmi, I believe, is his name. Is that correct? Yes, 
That's right, Rasmus. Yeah, and then his his wife uh, provides a little bit of an introduction, uh, Naja, and um, and then they have how many children again? They have six children. Uh, the oldest boy is already an adult, though he's nineteen. Gotcha. Okay. Well, well, let's play this little clip and and give our listeners a chance to to hear firsthand, which is new to the podcast. We haven't <laughs> done this before. This is really cool. So hopefully this will work. So we'll just take a few seconds and listen to the interview with Rosmi. My name is Nita. My name is Rasmi Al Nofal. In Jordan. I come from in Jordan. Uh, four years in Jordan. I um, live in Jordan in Camp Al Zatari. I live in Camp Al Zatari, Camp. Uh, I live in Syria. What again? Uh, anything work in the Syria. Sometimes in the farm, sometimes I'm uh, work in the Saudi Arabia and company Saudi. Uh, I need to come in the family here in Canada. I used to give me in Canada. Brother. My brother and the children and my wife and uh, every family. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, how, how this, this interview went. Well, as you can hear um, during the interview, Rasmi is being asked the questions in Arabic um, by an Arabic speaker because his English is not yet quite at the point where he understands everything that I'm asking him. And the answers that he's giving, of course, are limited by his language. So it was interesting because when I did this little interview with the family to get ready for this podcast, and I, and I did the taping, because I had a translator with me, I got to learn more about the family than I had known, even though they've been in the country since August. Huh. And now it was your associate who, who did the recording, and uh, she also helped to draft... Um, just an amazing document that will be a wonderful reference for the people that are listening in on this particular episode, because we're going to be talking about uh, in a little bit more depth, the private sponsorship of refugees, but in particular, the BVOR or the Blended Visa Office Referred Program. And uh, Ron Lee's associate just did a really awesome job at producing a document, which we are going to include in the show notes for this podcast. So once this goes up live on, on the Canadian Immigration Podcast.com website, you can go there, scroll down, and you will have a link to access this document. And it's just full of some amazing information. So I, in addition to that interview, I also interviewed the oldest daughter. So her name is Ahed, and she's 14. She's in grade 9 at the local high school near her house. And her English is really, really improving quickly now that she started school. So perhaps you could play a couple of the clips when I was speaking with her. Absolutely. And when I listen to these in advance, I'm thinking, you know what, it doesn't matter where these kids are coming from. You know, they, there's more similarities between kids all over the world than there are differences. And you can totally see from her answers. And, and some of them were just so cute. It was awesome. Anyways, we were go, so we'll, we'll go to those, uh, those uh, individual clips right now. I like everything. And I like school. I like my friend. Everything. In Jordan, my teacher is not good. 
But me, I don't like cold. Never. In Jordan, it's too cold and too hot. In Canada, I don't like boys in my class because I'm shy. Well, those answers were, were amazing. And I'm sure many of the listeners who have children that are that age could totally hear their own children answering these questions. You know, we went with our family down to Disney World here just a week ago. And uh, I can tell you that um, I would answer the exact same way she, she did when she said, I don't like the cold. <laughs> I don't like cold. Never. <laughs> In reference to the winters, obviously. So, so but, that was but awesome. It's interesting because when I spoke to Naja, the, the mother of the family, she was telling me that she has been in contact with her family that is still in the refugee camp and telling them how wonderful it is that all the rooms in their house are heated. heated. Oh. So there's not just one heater in one area of the house. They can walk anywhere in the house and everything is warm. So she's very, very pleased to have you know her home here in Canada and to be warm and have running water. These were all things that they didn't have in the refugee camp. All right. Now, this family, just to confirm for our listeners, they came through which, which private sponsorship stream? Right. So they were actually completely privately sponsored. And that was in contrast to the first two groups that we had, the family of four and then the second, just the individual woman. They were BVOR sponsorships. So that stands for Blended Visa Office Referred. And it's a joint program between a private sponsorship group and the Canadian government. So the private refugee sponsorship group is only responsible for half of the costs associated with the program, but they don't pick the refugees. The refugees are selected by the UNHCR and the Canadian government together. And then you, you choose your refugees from a list of people who are available for sponsorship. So that was quite a bit different than the family that we have most recently. Hmm, interesting. So when um, <clears throat> this list is produced, and I know because I, I know the answer to this question I'm asking you because <laughs> I read the awesome document, um, how does that work? Like how long is the list up and, you know, um, what, what, what do people have to do to, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but tell me a little bit more about this list that people are choosing from. So when we first looked at sponsoring, the list was practically non-existent. There was a problem with how the Canadian government and UNHCR were collaborating on producing a list of, of refugees who were available. So there were hardly any refugees available. And I was at um, an information meeting for, for the refugee group in, in Ottawa, and they I mentioned, oh, yeah, my group got a Beaver family. I'm like, wow, it's like you won the lottery because they've been trying to get a Beaver family and they hadn't been so lucky. So now it's actually quite a bit different, however. So we, the, the government has finally managed to improve the process of getting families and individuals onto this Beaver list. And they're finding they don't actually have enough sponsorship groups now. It's gone completely full circle. Before there were too many sponsorship groups and not enough refugees. And now there's more refugees than there are sponsorship groups. Hmm. When I read the document, I remember um, there was an indication that the names were only on the list for a certain period of time. And then they would drop off and go through the regular process. That's right. Then they become government-assisted refugee cases or GARs. But the problem is, is that... That means that there's one less GAR space, government-assisted uh -huh. space, when they could have come through the BVOR program. 
So right now that there are 41, sorry, 71 cases of families or individuals, so BVOR cases that are available for matching today here in, in, uh, in Canada. So if there were more groups that were interested in sponsoring, more of those families would be able to come to Canada. Awesome. And this right now is the plug that both Ronnie Lee <laughs> and I are going to make to all of you listeners to the podcast who are thinking, hey, I'd like to do something or get involved. Pay close attention to, to what Ronnie Lee is going to share with mm-hmm. us today because she's going to give you some awesome insights and tips and strategies and really give you a good introduction to this process, the BVOR process, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, which is going to give you the, the exactly the uh, the starting point to to move forward and, and take action so please everyone listen carefully to this um, because there is a need and I'd also just like to mention in terms of the BVOR cases that the majority of the individuals on the BVOR list right now are actually from Congo not Syrian or Iraqi or from any of the other countries so in Congo the primary language is French so the language barrier that I have with my Arabic-speaking family wouldn't be the same. I, my French is not great, but I could certainly get by a lot easier because I have no Arabic whatsoever. The kids have been trying to teach me, and they laugh me laugh at me whenever I try to pronounce something. Interesting. I think um, one of the most uh, dynamic aspects of being a lawyer practice immigration is exactly that trying to navigate our way through different languages. And, you know, I'm in the process of preparing for a, a supposal sponsorship, um, I, I should say, um, an appeal. And uh, it is a real challenge sometimes working with individuals. And so I know we're maybe jumping a little bit further ahead. Um, how have you managed that process? In terms of having to deal mm-hmm. in not my language? Diff- yeah. So, well, Google Translate and I have a tenuous relationship. <laughs> Because it's great, but it's not always totally effective. So I have received some very interesting questions through email or text from my refugee family. And we use WhatsApp, even though they're in Canada, we still use WhatsApp quite a bit. And so WhatsApp has a similar translation to to, uh, Google Translate. And so, for example, recently I got a text from Rasmi that said, Ronalee, you are eating meat. And I, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. <laughs> so I'll get these really odd texts and I'll be like, okay, what do I think they're trying to ask me? Um, but on the other hand, if I didn't have Google Translate, it would certainly be a lot more difficult. And it does work enough that I can get the gist of what they're asking me or what they need. Like they can say, you know, we need groceries. <laughs> so... At least I get some information from them. Now, we're also very fortunate that in our group, we do have a few uh, Arabic speakers. And so that has been really, really helpful because they can call and say, you know, there's some question about this. Can you explain? And uh, they've been able to do some of the appointments. We're also very, very fortunate in Ottawa that we do have services for immigrants in Arabic, which would not be the case necessarily in a smaller center. For example, they, we have a newcomer health clinic that has translators. So we haven't had to worry about taking them to the doctor and having to have a translator. We get to the clinic and there's already someone there. And obviously here in in Lethbridge, we definitely wouldn't have access to those resources that you would have in, in some of the larger centers. So 
Now, uh, Runley, we're going to jump in here and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the specific aspects. But I just want to remind everyone that this document that will contain, uh, that will that will upload and, and include within the show notes has a really good overview um, and goes into a little bit further detail regarding some of the topics that we're discussing. But it's not, we're not going to, we don't have the time in this little interview here to go through step by step through every single aspect of the uh, the the BV. O-R, the Bevor, Bevor, I guess is how you pronounce it, the Bevor um, sponsorship process. But I know one of the questions that people are always asking is, you know, what is the financial obligation? We can clearly see that you, you've got a very close, you know, um, service-oriented element to it where you're helping and guiding and giving of your time and your talents and things like that. But what are the financial obligations for sponsors? So sponsors are obligated to care for the family for the first year. And, and, and like, again, I said, it's a, if it's a Bevor family, then it's six months. So the government will cover six months and you'll cover the other six months. But the level of income that you're providing to them is very similar to what a family who is receiving social assistance would get. In addition to that, there is a certain amount of startup costs that you have to work into your budget. Because remember, these families are coming with a suitcase if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have some clothes. They may have a few personal items, but that's it. So we were given about five weeks notice before the family arrived. In that five weeks, we had to rent somewhere for them to live. And remember, there's eight of them. So we needed something large enough for that many people. And then we, when we rented the place, it was totally empty. So we had to find in a matter of weeks and store it all until we could move it into the place that we'd rented for them. We had to find beds. We had to find a table. We had to find a couch. And most of this came through donations because the budget that you have for your startup costs is quite small. So you can't go out and buy brand new things, of course. Mm. So we were lucky to find some things at secondhand stores and we all used our networks, Facebook, whatever we could find to say, okay, we need furniture. We put a call out and things started arriving at the house. Like I remember unpacking before the family came and I knew I had a box and I was, I figured it was linens, towels and sheets and I'm, and I'm unpacking and I'm like, okay, great, great. Got some hand towels. I've got some regular towels. Oh, great. These are some sheets that'll fit this one bed. If I only had a bath mat, next thing I know at the bottom of the box, there's a bath mat. So it was, it was just wonderful, the amount of donations that we got. But, of course, we didn't get donations for everything. Just this week, my husband and I were at Canadian Tire buying them shovels mm. because shovels for their long driveway was not one of the things that were included. So we had to make sure that we had the basic things for their home. We also collected donations of clothing. Um, and then whatever clothing, if there wasn't enough clothing for one person in particular, then we needed to purchase. So, for example, we managed to get donations of winter boots for all but one of the children. So that child I had to go and buy winter boots for. So they're getting the house set up, getting their, their clothing. Um, obviously, you know, there's perishables, groceries, things like that? Oh, yes, of course. So we did provide um, staples for their pantry for when they arrived. So there were some canned goods. We had some fresh items for them so they didn't have to shop right away when they first arrived. And the other important thing, of course, was school supplies and backpacks and lunch bags for the children. We were very fortunate that because they arrived at the beginning of August, yeah, we didn't time. have to have everything mm -hmm. right away. And actually, it was unfortunate. The kids weren't able to start school right away. They, they had to be... Um, 
um, interviewed at a family welcome center for the school board, and then they had to be uh, introduced into the classes once there was space available for them. Especially for the older kids, it took quite some time because the high school they would have gone to closed and all of the students from that high school were being uh, integrated into a different high school. And it was a very, very busy time for the school. So they actually had to wait almost until the beginning of October before they were able to start school. Oh, wow. That is a challenge. Yeah. So their backpacks were fresh and ready to go a few weeks before they were ready for school. But at least we didn't have to have them the day that they arrived on the, on the airplane. And you can just imagine, you know, I spent a couple of years living in Portugal. And I remember when I got there. And I thought I knew a little bit about Portuguese, but I really didn't. And I can remember, um, I can remember not understanding a thing. I can remember struggling to pick out one word that maybe I recognized from this mishmash of, you know, syllables that were all strung together. And, you know, I, I can only imagine a family like this who had already come from just real, real bad circumstances you know, and the hope and everything, the, the new opportunity, but still there's the reality of just not being able to communicate. And, uh, you know, and so I, I feel for these kids who, well, to start with, they don't get to start fresh with everybody else. It's mm -hmm. easier to yeah. integrate and kind of on the first slide day. in on the yep. first day. Then everybody's kind of got their groups set and you know how mm -hmm. kids can be sometimes. And then you're just plunked in there. Like you've just relocated from a different part of Canada. And, um, you know, and so, boy, I can imagine what that adjustment and it's still really, really fresh for all of them. It is. And it, it hasn't been without its difficulties. Uh, one of the boys did have a little bit of a problem at school recently and a boy pushed him. And so he pushed the boy back. You know how it is. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it sounds like what the problem was, was language that he became frustrated because he couldn't say what he needed to say to the boy. But again, there were really fortunate because the vice principal of his school speaks Arabic and was able to call the family and explain what had happened and work out solutions with the parents. Um, and that was something, uh, again, when I interviewed the mom for the podcast, uh, she was mentioning that uh, how impressed she was by how kindly they were treated by the administration at the school. That's an that's a that's a really really awesome feedback, and I know um, when I think about uh, um, you know when I think about the school systems and the burden that's placed upon them, just as it is, and mm -hmm. and then you have um, you know new immigrants with new challenges. When you have administration that's on board, it makes all the difference in the world. And uh, to have a vice principal, you said that that's actually yep. spoke Arabic. Speaks Arabic, yeah. Wow, that is yeah, huh? That's amazing. All right. Okay. So we now have a little bit of an understanding regarding some of the financial aspects of it. But if we shift back, you know, what is the application process like? So if someone says, hey, let's do this, you know, what does it look like? How long does it take? Well, it, again, this is going to be the difference between the Bivor families and a privately sponsored refugee family. So a Bivor family, they can arrive in Canada very quickly because they've already been pre-screened by the government. The government of Canada has already decided that they're, they meet the definition of a refugee. They have already done their medical examinations usually, and they have already had their security checks, which can take the longest. 
So once they're actually placed on the BVOR list, they're considered travel ready. And then it's only a matter of getting them onto a plane. And there also is some pre-settlement services that are provided. So they learn a little bit about Canada so that when they get here, they're not totally overwhelmed. So a BVOR family could arrive as early as a month or maybe four months, somewhere between a month and four months. A privately sponsored family, it will take longer. Our family arrived quicker than we were expecting, but it was still at least a year. I'm trying to remember when we first heard about the family, the baby was only six months. And by the time they arrived, she had just turned two. So there was about a year and a half from the time we first heard about them to getting all of their documents ready for them to arrive in Canada. The other difference between the two programs is that because the in the BVOR families, they're already pre-approved. The sponsorship group doesn't have to be responsible for all of those application forms that we normally have to provide for refugees. Whereas a privately sponsored group, they have to do all the same forms that anyone who's coming to Canada would have to fill out, like background declarations, the, the lovely generic application to come oh. to Canada. That all has to be done. And the sponsorship group is also responsible for translating all of their documents. So with a family of eight, it was hundreds of dollars getting all of their Syrian identity documents translated. Wow. You know, it's hard. I, I know <laughs> for our listeners, Ron Lee said, you know, you say awesome a lot after everything. <laughs> and so now I'm like trying to catch myself. Uh, but, but, it, but it really is, uh, it's an amazing process. And the, the amount of work like when I think of the two options, okay, do I want to do a private sponsorship? Do I want to try this BVOR process? Mm-hmm. Um, it sure sounds like this BVOR process is a whole lot less hassle. It and- is. And I think that's the other reason why I'm really trying to encourage your listeners to look into the program. Because my group, we didn't have anyone in our group who had family in Syria. So we had no one to sponsor. And I know that there's a lot of people who would be interested in sponsoring, but they think, well, who could I sponsor? I don't have anyone that I could sponsor. And the B4 um, families are the answer to that. They've already been selected by the government. You know that they really need Canada's help. You know they need a place to live. And it is a lot simpler. So all your group has to do is show that you have the funds available and show that you have a plan in place. Where are they going to live? Who's going to be responsible for transportation? Who's going to be responsible for taking them to the doctor? So the government is fairly sure that it's under control and that you understand what their requirements are. And then that's it. Then they'll arrive just like that within months. So your plan is just a, it's like a written document, like a business plan yep. almost. It's just your settlement plan and you... That's exactly you, it, yeah. Mm-hmm, you lay it yep. out and, and uh, okay, so how many people are in your group? Like what, what, what your group with this, um, a typical group, is there a certain size, you know, that, that just makes sense? Uh, obviously, you, you don't want to place the burden on, you know, just a couple people. It would be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what is an ideal size? Well, the minimum size a group can be is five. So you can do a group of five sponsorship. That's what it's actually called Called. is a group Mm -hmm. of five. We call them the G5s. So five individuals who all live in the same community can decide together that they will sponsor a refugee or a refugee family. You can also have a community group, which is larger. And then you can also go through a sponsorship agreement holder, which is often a church or a larger community group that already has an existing relationship with the government. And they've sponsored many times in the past. So my group, I guess we would probably be considered a community group because there are so many of us and, uh, 
we're not pri- we're not sponsoring family members. So our group, we have about 40 people who have donated money to the group. And then there's about a dozen of us. I'm trying to remember who's on my actual email list. About a dozen of us who are more actively involved in settling the family. So people who would have contact on a regular basis with the family. That means it's very challenging, though, because there's 12 of us or so who they could potentially call for help for something. Uh, we try to, um, you know, assign specific tasks to people in the groups. So there's one individual who's primarily responsible for dental appointments. There's two people who are primarily responsible for medical appointments. I've been doing a lot of the shopping. We all have our roles, but there's still a lot of communication that needs to happen. For example, if I go over and I see that someone's not feeling well, I may want to reach out to the medical committee to talk to them about that. So it's been a lot of emails. And you know, and that's, that's interesting because I was going to ask that, how do you manage everything with a large group of volunteers? And uh, especially when they all could be a potential contact point for the family and then coordinating everything and avoiding duplication and all those things that comes with a lot of well-meaning people who are just trying to do good, but at the same time, uh, you know, be be efficient and effective in, in what, mm-hmm. you know, the purpose behind the, the, the volunteering is. So a- Absolutely. It's quite challenging because, of course, everyone in the group is working and we have families and, we're, you know, you know how it is. We're all so busy to begin with. So I think uh, what we try to do is limit the email exchange to the people who really need to read the email, with the exception of the main coordinator for the group. She unfortunately has to be CC'd on everything. everything. Mm-hmm. She reads many emails. Um, but generally just trying to keep it to the people who are most involved. And it's interesting because you also have to be respectful of the family's privacy. So our family, and again, when I was interviewing them for the podcast, and I said, how do you find working with such a large group of people who are responsible for you? And that was actually one of the comments that Rasmi made was that sometimes he wishes that information wasn't shared. And so it gave me an opportunity to explain to him that if there's something that he wants to tell me or someone else in the group, all he needs to do is say, please, can you not share this with the rest of the group? And we won't. And the reason we do share information is so that we can come up with solutions and people can reach out and get uh, assistance for issues. Like if I say they need this, someone from the group may know someone who has that, for example. And the only way we can do that is by sharing information. Hmm. Okay, so we've gone through pretty well um, some of the main questions that people would have about this. We know Canada itself has become, once again, uh, a, a significant leader in, in this whole world of, of refugee uh, settlement and, and just international obligations to those who are, who are suffering. Um, I think it was mentioned, I'm trying to remember, we're having a little bit of an effect on some other countries as well, are we not? Oh, absolutely. Canada has been accepting refugees for you know basically throughout our history it's interesting and on the uh, government of canada's website they actually have a document that, that says a history of refuge and it goes through the timeline of when refugees started coming to canada and the first entry is 1776 when black loyalists came to canada but it's quite an interesting document maybe you'd like to include it in the show notes actually actually yes and it's and it talks about when the private sponsorship of refugee programs started. Um, and it was basically in the 70s. And 
since then, Canada has been the main country in the world that has had this program of private refugee sponsorship. But just recently, a few years ago, Australia also decided to start a program that was similar to Canada's. They started it making it just a temporary program to see how it worked would work. And since then, they have made it permanent. And now also the UK has announced that it is going to try to create a similar program based on our model and the Australian model. Then last year, 2016, um, Canada has helped to organize the Global Refugee Sponsorship Initiative. So we're actually now training other countries who want to start programs just like Canada's. You know, it's interesting when I think about um, the economic programs in Canada, especially Express Entry, how we learned and and modeled ours after the Australian and, and New Zealand models and how now we're in turn having the impact of, of, or at least the effect of, of uh, learning, you know, sharing what we've learned about the process with other countries too. That, that reciprocity is kind of cool. I never really thought of it that way. Well, good ideas are meant to be shared. I agree 100%. Well, this has been wonderful, Ronalee. I really, really appreciate uh, the time that you've taken to to share this with us, especially to go and get those, those audio clips, because those are going to be well, those are just, for people who are listening to it, it'll add just a little different flair and make the whole process just that much more um, real. And uh, sometimes we talk about these things in a very, um, you know, at the 10,000 foot level, but when we can actually see how lives are, are impacted directly, it just makes things uh, just sink in and, and settle a whole lot, a whole lot more within us. Um, so thank you so much for doing that. Thanks for having me on your show. Now, is there anything else that we haven't had a chance to cover that you would like to add before we wrap things up? Are there any, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if off the top of your head, if there are any things that you potentially, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here a little bit, but mm-hmm. if there are anything that you would recommend people watch out for that they do differently or, you know, that if they were going through the process, this would be something, a tip or a strategy, I guess, that you would uh, you, you could give them to make the process maybe go a little bit smoother. I think the best thing that our group did was pons- spon- uh, sorry, was to um, partner with a sponsorship agreement holder. Even though I'm an immigration and refugee lawyer, I hadn't done any private sponsorship work prior to getting involved in this group. Um, and so when we partnered with the Anglican Diocese of Ottawa, we were able to access the wealth of information that they had available to us, and they were able to help us with all of the forms and all of the documents that we needed to provide. So if at all possible, that is a great strategy for getting started is going to one of these sponsorship agreement holders. And even if they're not able to take you on, asking them if they would provide information to help you out. And I I guess the other thing I would like to say is that If you do decide to get into refugee sponsorship, like any other volunteer work you do, you are going to get more out of it than what you are going to provide for the family. This has been a wonderful experience for my own family and for the other people that are in the group. Uh, Most of the people that are in the group, I didn't know them before before this. I've gotten to meet some really wonderful people. Um, and it's now become, uh, I see the, I see our refugee family every week. They've, they've, they're like family. I was joking with them recently. I'm like the big bossy sister. 
sure. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it is a, it is quite a bit of work, but it is very, very rewarding. And I think you don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be helping this family. You can also think of how much you're going to get out of it. Hmm. That's a great insight. And I think anyone who's volunteered in, in any capacity, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the good that comes back to you for the small amount of time, effort, mm-hmm. you know, resources in whatever way they're given, um, it always comes back tenfold and, uh, or more. And so this is really neat. I really, really appreciate um, just, you know, sharing the journey, uh, sharing these wonderful audio clips. Um, as our listeners probably already know, if they want to go back to season one, episode 29, they can re- you know, learn a little bit more about you uh, in particular. But I did want to remind all of our listeners that Ronalee is located in Ottawa and she does not just refugee law, but, um, but all kinds of immigration. So make sure that you reach out to her. And Ronalee, if people do want to contact you and say, hey, there's someone who's doing it the right way, um, you know, volunteering, I want to give my... You know, I, I want her to represent me because she's in line with my, you know, with my, uh, my <laughs> philosophy on life. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, email is always the best. My uh, email address is there right on my website. Mm-hmm. I also like to mention that I do have a Twitter account. And if you want to see pictures of me with the family when we oh. greeted them at the airport and also the family and the individual woman who arrived earlier, you just have to scroll through my Twitter posts and, and they're in there. Gotcha. And so Ronalee Carey, so that's your Twitter is R-O-N-A-L-E-E-C-A-R-E-Y. The advantage to having a name like Ronalee Carey is that I'm the only immigration lawyer in the country with that name. It's really easy to find me. <laughs> I know My name is, isn't, isn't common like Mark. So. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, I agree. I agree. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really excited to get this one out to our listeners. And I know that it will be one of our more popular uh, episodes without a doubt. So thank you. Thank you. I think all of you can probably see why I enjoy having Ronalee on this podcast so much. She is amazing. The resources that she put together to accompany her interview, at least in this um, part two, I guess, if you will, of the private sponsorship of refugees uh, are great. And so if you go down to the show notes, you will find a copy of a document entitled An Overview of the Canadian Private Sponsorship of Refugees Program. And uh, Ron Lee and her associate, as she indicated, put that document together. And it's a wonderful little resource. It answers some of the basic questions. And uh, yeah, and you'll love it. And also, um, you can also check for, within the show notes, uh, that uh, reference that Ron Lee made to the government, uh, their report, their historical report on uh, the sponsorship of refugees in Canada. So I think you'll really like those. Um, Other than that, uh, we've come to the end of another podcast. And uh, thanks for your patience. Um, It was fun. And I can tell you, as I I did some of the post-editing for this, it takes a long time trying to add in audio clips and to get everything to fit. And although you, as you're listening to this, didn't notice any... uh, you know, any, any real uh, difficulties in, in getting the audio clips from the refugees into the podcast. Trust me, there was a lot of post, uh, post-production editing. And I am not an audio editor. So uh, those of you who think, hey, 
you know, Mark, he's got this great podcast. Trust me, it can be a real pain in the neck getting things to work. So anyways, I want to uh, express appreciation as I always do for all of you guys tuning in. And if you have any thoughts for or ideas for future podcasts, let me know. And uh, in the end, thanks as well for putting up with me. I think some of you may know that uh, I was forced to get some braces here <laughs> a little while back. So, uh, so the smooth talking uh, Mark Holthy is no longer um, around. He's disappeared for probably another year as I slur my way through these darn braces. And uh, hopefully, once uh, if you can stick with me through the end, then uh, I'll return to my fine form uh, in about a year. Anyways, thanks for listening. Tune in on iTunes. Uh, don't forget to go in there and leave a review because that actually helps with the reach of the uh, of the podcast. And also go to the website and uh, CanadianImmigrationPodcast.com. Check it out. And uh, thanks once again for, for being a supporter. Have a wonderful evening. And I wish you guys all the best as you navigate your way through this world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. This place I your phone.